That last song got me. Well, this has been a busy morning. I've had graduates. Got to exchange some fashion tips with Russ White already. If I could sing like that, they wouldn't ask me to speak. Well, let's get right to it. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Warning before I get started is that I haven't timed this sermon at all, so we may be here for weeks. I'm just kidding. Days at most. Revelation 3.15. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Quick story about... Ten years ago, roughly, uh, I remember a young guy, Christian guy, who was sharing uh, the gospel with his unbelieving friend, and he quoted this verse, and he said something along the lines of, you can't sit on the fence, you got to make a decision for Jesus. Sounds like a good Baptist sermon, right? You got to make a decision, you either have to believe, be hot, or don't believe. Be cold. You got to do one or the other. You can't just wait it out. Now think about that for a sec. Can you honestly believe that the Lord Jesus would like to have somebody make a decision to not believe? Of course not. Look at the next verse. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So lukewarm is the problem. It's not hot or cold, but unbelief is a very big problem. And so cold can't mean unbelief. Well, that's just bad interpretation. And if we would have just looked at the next verse, he wouldn't have made that silly mistake of misinterpreting the text. And sharing with somebody that you have to hurry up and make a decision not to believe. Anybody want to guess who that young guy was? Right here. I was wrong that day, and I've repented since then, and I've learned the error of my ways. And we get a lot of texts wrong sometimes, maybe often. And it's okay to be wrong, provided that we're willing to accept correction and be right. We don't want to stay there. 2 Timothy 2.15 is about handling the Word properly so that we don't have to be ashamed. So what I'd like to do this morning, as cheerfully as possible, is I'd like to take us through some commonly misunderstood passages, and I'd like to read them with you in their immediate context. About five different contexts. You can have immediate context, which is just talking about the surrounding passages around the verse. You can have original language context, which tells you what's going on in the original language, grammatical context, historical and cultural context, and theological context. We're just going to do the immediate context today. That's just looking at the verses that are around a particular text, like we did just a moment ago. Now, I'm going to warn you right up front, some of you may get a little frustrated with me because of some of these verses. 
because you may feel like I'm taking something away from you. Some of you may lean on some of these texts. But if we didn't have the correct interpretation, then you never really had what I'm taking away. Amen? Right? So I don't want you to lean on the verses. I want you to lean on Him to whom the verses belong. And I want us to understand the verses so we can know Him better in order to be able to lean on Him more. I try to do this with as much humility as I can because I've been wrong before. And so it's a, it's a humbling thing when you find out that you're not correct. And I have that regularly. My hope, what is the goal? I'm going to state it up front. The next time you open your Bibles, you read the surrounding passages. Take time to look at the context that's around what you're reading. If you don't understand it, try to focus on what's going on around it. It's going to take more than a quick devotional. Or if, you have, if you're in trouble, you're, you don't understand what's going on, bring it to me. We'll work it out together. All right? We, need to, we, could, we could help each other. We can figure it out together. Does that sound good? Okay. Let's do this, please. Please turn in your Bible now. We're going to be doing a lot of this. To Psalm 127.1, if you have it. Since it's a big group, we can all race to see who gets there faster, like we do sometimes in church. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, I don't know about you, but I recently read, and I've read before this, that this has to do with church planting. You ever heard this? You know, unless the Lord builds a house, the church, it's not going to succeed. There's truth in that, right? And it's usually coupled with Proverbs 29, 18, which is without a vision, the people perish. And that's true. However, that's not what this verse is talking about. Let's look at the context. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. What's the point? Well, the point is, whether it's something small like building a house or it's something bigger like guarding a city or cultivating a land, the land, I'll quote Alan Ross, professor of Semitics, if done independently from God's sovereign blessing, it's futile. But the person who trusts in the Lord will find rest. In other words, these verses are about God's providence and His sovereignty. It has nothing to do with constructing a church, although it's true that if God doesn't allow it to succeed, it won't. But that's not what these verses are talking about. We started off easy. Let's keep going. Psalm 118, 24. You hear this one daily. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we can say that now because winter's ending, right? So we're done with the snow, Lord willing. And now every day we can wake up. This is the day that the Lord has made. And if you were real spiritual, you said it during winter time. Because even though it's cold, and my car's stuck in the driveway, even though it's miserable outside and I have to go shovel the heavy stuff because the, 
the guys snowblowed me in. This is the day that the Lord has made. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Let's look at the context. Verse 22. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is talking about the day of salvation. The day that the Jewish authorities rejected Jesus Christ as king, he had become the chief cornerstone to usher in salvation for all people. That doesn't mean that we can't praise God because it's a good day. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about the day of salvation. And we even sing this song. And it's okay to sing the Lincoln Brewster song. The day is the day you have made that thing. That's fine. Why? Because it's true. You can still sing it. Today we live in the shadow of the cross. We can still rejoice in today because the Lord made it. Praise God we know where we're going. Praise God that we can deal with things because of what Christ has accomplished. But that's not what this verse is talking about. These just start getting worse as we keep going, just to let you know. Matthew 6, 13. If I could find it. I used to pray this in CCD. That's Roman Catholic Catechism, if you don't know. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, if you have a pew Bible, what's it say? From evil. Do we pray, God, deliver us from evil? Believers today still pray this. The problem with this is that the text doesn't say deliver us from evil. Because evil here is not a noun. It's an adjective. Give me a break. When's the last time we did any grammar? It's a substantival adjective that's right after a definite article. The. What in the world does that mean? That means it's an adjective used as a noun. For example, blessed are the poor. Well, the poor what? People, right? Or the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek what? Meek is an adjective. The meek people. The stupid is preaching today. The stupid what? <laughs> Don't answer that. It's an adjective. So the text doesn't say deliver us from evil, but it says deliver us from the evil. The evil what? The evil one. That's what the prayer is. God never promised to deliver us from evil. Sometimes He delivers us through evil. But what's the promise? It's that the evil one will not touch us. John seventeen fifteen. I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Same construct. Don't pray to be taken away from evil. As many of you know, even right now, not delivered from evil, but the evil one will not be able to touch you. Just over in the next chapter, Matthew 7, 1. This is good. I love when Christians say this one too. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Didn't you hear this? Who am I to judge somebody else? Let's just live and let live, right? 
We're supposed to just love one another. Who am I to judge somebody? It's not what this is talking about. Let's look at the context. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For, if your Bible says that, underline it. For or because, in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the problem isn't judgment, it's hypocrisy. You know that because Jesus also commanded the Jewish authorities. He told them to judge. He said, but do not judge by mere appearances. Make a correct judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul chides the church at Corinth for not judging the immoral brother. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Judging is a good thing. Depends on the spirit that we do it in. We're supposed to judge. Can't live if we're not making judgments. But it doesn't mean... Just let bygones be bygones. Matthew 18, a few chapters over. We have this verse as a children's, in a children's song at home. And I love the CD. It's really good. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Some have thought that this verse means we don't have to go to church. Some churches use it to make decisions about purpose statements. You know, where two or three are gathered, this is how we determine the Lord's will. It's not what this verse is talking about. The worst one is, is when you think if you're two or three Christians together, then God is more present than when, when you're just by yourself. All kinds of problems with that. Let's look at the context. Verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, and it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is talking about church discipline. This is talking about letting every fact be established by two or three witnesses. In verse 16, you have a sin that's or verse 15, excuse me, a sin that's been committed in the church by a fellow believer. In verse 17, the fellow, or 16, the fellow believer refuses to repent. 17, the whole church finds out about the sin. Verse 18, when the church agrees to sever its social relationship with the erring Christian, it does so with the authority of heaven. Doesn't mean you shouldn't gather for prayer groups, small groups, whatever. It just means that this is church discipline. I'm not talking about making decisions for purpose statements or directions or anything like that. Sure, pray about it. 
But that's not what this verse is talking about. You guys are going to want to kill me by the time I get to number two and one, I promise. Next one, Proverbs 22, 6. If I knew my Bible, I could get there. There we go. Nope, that's not it. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there's about three views that you could have with this verse. I'm just going to say two, because one can basically be blended into the first one already. The one view is that it's the normal view. Train up a child in the sense that you train him up, train her up, train them up in the Lord. And if you do that, then... They're going to keep going on the way of wisdom, keep serving the Lord, so on and so forth. The other view is something like, the text can also be translated, train up a child according to his way, in the sense of if your child has a particular disposition or bent, you, you work with them according to that bent, and they continue to do that. I've held both views, the last one most recently, and I'm kind of going back to the first one. I'm not sure which one is the right translation. So the safest way is just to live as if both were true. Now, why do I bring this up, though, if I don't know what the correct translation is? Because how many parents suffer grief because you've had a wayward child when you go, I took them to church when they were younger. We went to VBS. We, we did this and did Bible study and we prayed every night before they fell asleep. And parents are tormented by the fact that they must have done something wrong, right? Because the child didn't turn out the way they were supposed to. Well, the problem with this one isn't the immediate context, per se. The problem is the genre. In other words, what type of literature is Proverbs? Anybody know? Wisdom literature. Poetry. You know that from the parallelisms that are in here. Does wisdom literature express law or general truth? It expresses general truth. If you read it as law, you're going to think that you should have done this and therefore this other thing follows every time. Look at Proverbs 16.7. Let's, let's prove this point. Let's not just state it. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with them. Let me ask you a question. Was, was Jesus' ways pleasing to the Lord? What did his enemies do to him? Crucified him. Were Paul's ways pleasing to the Lord? Yeah. What happened to him? His enemies stoned him. Is this a law or is it general truth? It's wisdom literature. It's general truth about how to live successfully from the vantage point of the Lord. So we read the literature wrong. Even if we don't have the right interpretation, we've got to know which literature we're talking about. Don't read Proverbs as if they're laws. Cause yourself unnecessary grief. It's not the parents' fault. People have free will. Let's keep going here. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. 
I told some of you guys we'd be flipping a lot of pages today. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. I used to think this verse was about heaven. In fact, a lot of people think this verse is about heaven. But it's not about heaven. It has nothing to do with heaven. Let's look at the context. Go back to verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This isn't talking about heaven. It's talking about salvation. It's talking about the wisdom of God, that which he prepared beforehand, which none of the rulers and authorities knew, because if they would have known, they would not have crucified Jesus, but they didn't know, so they crucified him. And in that wisdom, they actually brought about the divine purpose of God, which nobody knew beforehand because it was hidden in ages past. It's the mystery of salvation. Verse 10 says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The wisdom in a mystery which God has predestined to our glory, it's salvation, not heaven. The next one is in Second Chronicles, and I suppose this is apropos to say something fun for the morning because the 4th of July is coming up, and I've seen T-shirts with American flags on, with this on. And if you own one, you're probably going to get mad at me after we're done with this. But look at Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Probably go faster than I need to. That's good. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Numerous occasions I've heard folks use this verse to talk about let's pray for America. Verse has nothing to do with America. America is not God's people. Once again, look at the context. In fact, look at verse 10, right above it. Then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people. Israel. Thus Solomon finished the work, so on and so forth. This is talking about Israel. This is talking about if Israel sins and turns away from the Lord and He disciplines them so that they will repent and turn back to the living God, then He will hear from heaven, return, heal their land, return them to their own 
land. This is talking about Israel. It has nothing to do with praying for America. This tells us something about God. It's not the case that just because it's, it's not about praying for America that, that this verse is now completely useless to us. I don't want to convey that idea to you in any way. What's it tell us about God? Well, one thing it tells us is that He's merciful. How many times has Israel turned their back on the Lord and He brought them back to their land? Multiple times, and that's just in Scripture. That doesn't even count the present day. We can pray for God to heal. We can pray for God to bless. But when Israel sins and then they repent, God will hear from heaven and return them to their land. It's talking about God's mercy in His dealings with His people. He is faithful to His covenant promises. That's good. I don't want to be the naysayer up here. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. That's cause for rejoicing. If we want to know how to live under the authorities of America, then we should go to somewhere like Romans 15 or whatever. Talk about how to, how to be present in authorities and pray for authorities and so on and so forth. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Last two and then I will run. I get this one weekly. Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Weekly, I have somebody quote this to me to the effect that God's ways of thinking are not our ways of thinking, or that God has his own logic and we have mere human logic or something to that effect. That's not what these verses are talking about. The assumption, the reason we think that, is because usually these verses are ripped right out of their context, and we read the word your, and we assume that it's talking to the reader. It's not talking to the reader. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. It is not talking about different types of thinking or reasoning. This is comparing righteous thoughts in ways with unrighteous thoughts in ways. People are unrighteous, particularly the people that he's speaking about right here. But this isn't talking about two different types of thinking. It's comparing the ways of the unrighteous with the ways of the Lord. That's what it's speaking about. And if we want to get real technical, technical, we could ask the question, does God think? Because what is thinking? It's a process. 
Can any processes exist in God? Can you go from one moment to a next moment without having a changing God? Miranda's looking at me like she was excited. All right. Last one. Please turn to Jeremiah 29.11. I told you, you guys were going to get upset with me. I'm, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. It's not why I'm doing this. We lean on these verses, don't we? Right? Especially if you're going through junk. You try to grab a verse and pull it to you. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Quote from Joel Osteen, God desires to see you flourish in this life. He wants to see you come out of setbacks, stronger, wiser, increased, and promoted. He wants to give you hope in your final outcome and see you come to a flourishing faith or flourishing finish, excuse me. Andy Stanley. We may not know for certain everything the future holds, but we know that God thinks good thoughts toward us to give us a future and a hope. Rick Warren, if you have felt hopeless, hold on. Wonderful changes are going to happen in your life as you begin to live it on purpose. God says, I know what I am planning for you. I have good plans for you, not plans to hurt you. I will give you a hope and a good future. What's ironic about these is these are just quotes, right? So I could have taken them out of context. <laughs> but if what they're referring to is this verse, and they probably are, that's problematic. I don't know about the first one, but the latter two should have known better. Let's go back to verse, all the way back to verse 4 in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to, thus says the Lord to, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. When's the last time you were sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon? Any takers? Adeline, maybe. She travels a lot. I know that. What does the Lord say? He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. We could pick up some good principles from this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So this verse is talking to Israel. It's not talking to Christians. 
specifically refers to Israel as God's people. They have a future and a hope. Now, at the risk of being a Debbie Downer, what do you do when you see verses like this? How do you apply them? Because, I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? We're, we're trying to read the Bible so we can apply it to our lives. And the biggest problem is, is that we don't take time to observe the text. We don't take, take the time to then interpret the text. We just jump right into observation, and we see the you, and we, we take it and claim it to ourselves. Oh, God's going to give me a future and a hope. But when we understand the text in its immediate context, it doesn't seem to say that. And so what do you, what do, you do with a verse like this? Can you apply it? Or are we just left with a whole bunch of reading that nobody knows what to do with? Well, let me quickly tell you how to apply something like this, and we'll, we'll get out of here. To whom is this text written in the group of Israel? Who did we say? The exiles, right? Why was Israel exiled? Because of their sin? Not only their sin, their egregious sin. That means really, really, really bad. They had become just as bad, if not worse, than Sodom and Gomorrah. When's the last time you read Genesis? You remembered what those cities were like, that the Lord had rained fire and brimstone upon. And what's God's message to these unrighteous, undeserving, horrible, horrible people? I will give you a future and a hope. When was the last time you cheated on someone or lied to them and left them and hated them and then came back to them because you asked forgiveness and then you left again and then you came back again then you left again and then you came back to them and what does this type of person do how about the person after you do all that they still die for your sins what kind of love is that that's beautiful that's a wonderful thing can you imagine leaving God and turning your back on Him over and over and over until you get to the point where you go, this is the final straw. He won't want me anymore. Yes, He does. Yeah, He does. God is the type of God who no matter how many times you turn away, He's always trying to get back to you and to me. So you look at this verse, you read it in its context, and then you ask the question, you take a step back and you go, what does this tell me about God? Not what is the text saying to me, necessarily, but what is this saying about God? What does this reveal about His character? And then next time you're reading your Bible or you get down on your knees, you go, okay, God, you're like this. That's awesome. That's much better than just a future and a hope. Because I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means this life, or I don't know if that means... It certainly means eternity in some sense. But I keep screwing up all the time. And so my hope's going to falter. Let's become the type of folk that take the time 
the requisite time to look at our Bibles, to read them in their proper context. Three words are the three rules of interpretation. Write these down if you don't have them written down anywhere. There's three rules. Number one is context. Number two is context. Number three is context. Three rules of interpretation, and you won't go wrong. If you have any questions on Bible verses or anything, please come see me. That's why I'm here. If not, I'm just sitting in my office watching YouTube. I'm just kidding. You watch Netflix. No. All right, let's pray. Lord God, Father, we probably wouldn't last a day at our jobs if we weren't competent to do the work. And yet when we come to your word, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword that's able to sanctify us and that's sufficient for all faith and practice, we don't take time to give ourselves the competence to read it and understand it. Lord, please help us become people that can accurately handle the word of truth. We all get a first time in seeing you face to face, Lord. Please let it be the case that when we do that, we're not ashamed. Please prepare us now before it's too late. Pray that everybody in this room, myself included, help us, Lord, to take time to read your word first and foremost. Let's take time to depend on the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's take time to understand it and meditate on it day and night. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord, please help us interpret your word in the right way. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.